Hey, Jay, has a sentinel program ever worked out well? No. You'd think humans would learn. I mean, look, Miles, we still make nuclear weapons. Ugh, that's depressing. A good point, but depressing. Honestly, I have a hard time determining which is a worse idea. I mean, don't get me wrong, from a destruction and loss of life standpoint, it's obviously nukes. But on the other hand, what makes nuclear weapons so devastating is that they're very effective in the ways they're designed to be. So in terms of basic functionality, all ethics aside, Sentinels are just awful. They do seem wildly inefficient. Well, and they've got this consistent, glaring weakness. The knees? Logic. Generation after generation of Sentinel has been defeated by conversation. Figure out the right logic loop and you can just completely disable them. You know, you might be onto something. There was that time Cyclops convinced the Sentinels to fight the sun, and the way Rachel reprograms their prime directive in Days of Future Yet to Come. Remember when the X-Men convinced Nimrod to jump into the Siege Perilous? Those were some good times. That was pretty cool. But Nimrod has to have learned from his mistakes, right? That's his whole deal. In a manner of speaking. Okay, I know Cable defeated him with logic too, but that was technically before the whole Siege Perilous. Sort of. Oh, he definitely changed his approach afterwards. Got better at reasoning. No, I would definitely not say that. In fact, he once logic looped himself into working to help save mutants from extinction. On what argument? Well, see, he was worried that with all the mutants gone... Evolution would continue regardless? He wouldn't have anything to do. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 262 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a big vat of squishy, circuitry-filled, fleshy continuity stuff. Is the phalanx squishy? I always figured it was kind of more crispy. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it kind of depends on who's drawing them, and that's something we'll talk about in this episode as we switch over from John Romita Jr. to Joe Matarera. Like, maybe like one of those magnetic desk fidget toys made of little tiny slivers of metal. That could work, yeah. I always kind of figured it was more like, uh, I don't know if there's a different name for these things than water weenie, but like those little hollow cylindrical balloons that have water in them and you can kind of squish them around, except they also absorb your life force and then summon a giant tower to summon their parent alien race to destroy the planet. I mean, I never really had a term for them, but I guess now that one's stuck. I don't know. That's what my family called them, but, and again, my family operated in mysterious ways. Oh my. <laughs> I, I guess that solves the mystery of what was in... Whose pants were they? Uh, Cyclopses. Okay, then. Now we know. I mean, definitely Namor's. Anyway, I suspect we may be getting even more off track than usual, even earlier than usual, so uh, gold medal to us. It's the phalanx. They're pretty all-encompassing. I guess that's true. And other things that are all-encompassing include continuity. So let's dive right into a nice juicy slice of previously on X-Men. The X-Men have recently encountered some weird, weird people. I mean, 
not 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 that they don't usually, but these people are a consistent type of weird that reminds us a little bit of Warlock's techno-organic virus. So first was a group of soldiers made of pink robot goo that attacked Iceman's ex-girlfriend and melted into nothing when they were defeated. Speaking of ex-girlfriends, the the Weird Machine People's next appearance involved Archangel's dead ex-girlfriend Candy Southern, who returned briefly but turned out to be an organic machine herself, as was Cameron Hodge, who had killed her first and then resuscitated her in order to manipulate Warren. He showed up too. You may remember Cameron Hodge as a great big jerk who started out as Angel's ex-roommate and ended up as a partially demonic, partially robotic leader of an apartheid state called Genosha who just couldn't die. I mean, he is still technically Warren's ex-roommate. It's not like they've moved back in together. True, true. Well, meanwhile, RoboCandy tore herself apart, which seemed to defeat Hodge as well, and everyone was left feeling gross and troubled. RoboCandy really seems like something that would come in like a novelty plastic container and be tiny, like, sugar pellets. Yeah, yeah, it turns out much less appetizing the way that story ended up. Oh man, the phalanx would make really good, like, novelty-themed candy, though. I guess that's true. I'd legitimately never considered that, Jay. I marvel you you clearly missed a massive, massive tie-in marketing opportunity here. Well, anyway, good thing that whole fleshy robot people coming back from the dead thing is over and probably isn't a sign of any sort of larger problem. I mean, what an X-Men ever is. Foreshadowing? What's that? Meanwhile, Sabretooth, Wolverine's old bloodthirsty nemesis and an all-around murderous jerk, is a prisoner of the X-Mansion. Professor Xavier has been telepathically and therapeutically nominally treating Sabretooth for his murderous rages. Um, it's been going... I don't know if I'd use the word okay. It's been going. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the X-Mansion is also currently home to a second villain, Emma Frost, the White Queen. Who is comatose at the moment. So her treatment's been a little bit easier, because, yeah, she's been comatose due to one of the upstarts sticking some sentinels on her a while back. And what with the coma, she's been pretty quiet lately. Maybe too quiet. And so let's dive into a few issues. Now, these issues are uncharacteristically very neatly sorted into an A plot and a B plot. I'm not sure which is A and which is B, but they're two very distinct plot lines, so we can just talk about one and then talk about the other. This is so much easier than usual. Plotline B implies that we only have 26. So what do you say we designate the stuff that takes place in the X-Mansion and around it as Plotline A and dive in there with Uncanny X-Men number 311, Putting the Cat Out? Actually, I would like to suggest that we choose an entirely different initial system and make this Plotline M for Mansion and the other one Plotline P for Phalanx. Hmm. And then it can also be a reference to Magic Points or Military Police. Members of Parliament. We have so many options. So in the member plot line, hmm, yeah, okay, let's just go with it. Who's the creative team? All right, we've got Scott Lobdell, um, writing on pencils John Romita Jr., inks by Dan Green and Al Vey, colors by Steve Bucoletto, and Marie Javins. Oh, hey, I just read that Marie Javins took over as DC's executive editor of New Publishing Initiative, so good on her. Right on. This is also John Romita Jr.'s last issue of Uncanny X-Men, he had initially planned to only leave temporarily for the Punisher-Batman crossover he was working on, 
But then Joe Matarera, who came on as a fill-in artist, was such an immediate hit that editor Bob Harris decided to give him the permanent gig and just sort of kick JRJR to the curb. I gotta say I agree with that decision. Um, I Matarera is fantastic on this book, and I, I think he's the right choice for for this this particular era. I also, I mean, I'm I'm on record as not being a huge fan of of John Romita Jr. at least at this point in time. So. I, I, yeah, I think, I think that, that Medora is a massive step up here. Yeah, we'll talk more about this when we get to his first issue, which is the next issue. But when he came on the scene, he was a freaking revelation. I was in love with his art. You know who he reminds me of a lot? Who's that? Um, Mike Waringo. You know, I can see that actually. Yeah. Yeah, he's got that sort of expressive cartooniness. Um, That, again, sort of marries really, really well with more traditional comics um, draftsmanship. But for now, in Uncanny number 311, John Romita Jr. is still the artist, so let's go through what he draws in his final issue. I want to start by breaking what, for me, was the crushing disappointment of this story arc, which is that we never get to see Bishop take Jubilee to Rocky Horror Picture Show. Right, because the issue opens with Jubilee telling Beast to hurry up with his techno stuff that he's doing because he's going to be her chaperone to go see Rocky Horror. And when that doesn't work, she asks Iceman, and yeah, maybe after Iceman, she would have gone to ask Bishop, and that would have been amazing. I feel like Bishop might have fallen in love with Rocky Horror. It seemed very clear to me that that's what it was leading up to. Well, Bishop gets to do his whole anthropologist on Mars bit if he goes. And in general, because he doesn't know that much about 20th century culture, he'll he'll believe whatever Jubilee tells him, which is great. That's a really good point. That would have been an amazing story. I kind of want a what-if issue, and there is actually a what-if issue based on this, this issue here, but not that part of it, that is just Jubilee and Bishop going to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So speaking of which... um. I, I wasn't sure if, if kids today were familiar with the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and then I realized that I wasn't sure if kids in our day were particularly familiar with the Rocky Horror Picture Show, because we're technically like a generation and a half too young, um, and it's definitely still going. It's that midnight showing still exists. Rocky Horror Picture Show is sort of a cult phenomenon um, when the it, it, it tends to be big at the intersection of queer kids and theater kids. It involves audience participation. Those of you who are are, are younger and perhaps more emu-inclined um, may associate this phenomenon more closely with Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog or possibly um, Repo Man. But uh, Rocky Horror did that first. It's very, very dated in some very specific ways, and it's fairly controversial in the queer and trans communities. There are, there are a lot of people... Who, for whom it's a very, very fond and important personal touchstone, a lot of people for whom it's very much the opposite. Um, but it's a thing that people used to more, but still go to for midnight showings on Saturday night to yell in unison at the screen and, th- and throw things and shadow cast and all of that stuff. And if you like that and want more, you can watch the sequel, Shock Treatment, and then just be really confused. There was actually a revival of of the Rocky Horror Show, which is the stage show that the movie is based on, um, in the UK. That 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 I, I believe was pretty pretty heavily critically acclaimed. The movie itself was a massive massive flop when it came out, and then became this enormous cult phenomenon. Random trivia: the same guy who wrote and directed it definitely wrote and directed Spice World. And played the King of Thieves in the Dungeons and Dragons movie, and played the main creepy villain in my personal favorite movie ever, Dark City. 
Oh man, I always forget that he's in that. He totally is. Also, going back a few steps, Jay, you mentioned Repo Man. Did you mean Repo the Genetic Opera? Because I love the movie Repo Man, but I wouldn't really categorize it alongside Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh shit, you're absolutely right. I meant Repo the Genetic Opera, but now I'm really sad that we don't live in a world where Repo Man has that specific status. Or I guess if you mostly know this phenomenon through the Thursday Next books, it's like Richard III. Well, anyway, all of that very much aside, Jubilee wants to go see Rocky Horror, but Beast is busy. He is in this clunky yellow spacesuit working inside the mansion's power core, which I don't know that we've ever seen before. It kind of reminds me of this hot pink version of a drawing by Mobius, the guy that drew the Inkle and a lot of other amazing European comics. It's like this vast empty space with these intricate, softly geometric bits of circuitry on the walls. I feel strongly that any building that has something that can be described as a power core should be able to turn into a giant robot, launch into space, or both, and I feel distinctly betrayed that the mansion can do neither. I mean, Jonathan Hickman's current run is going in all sorts of unexpected places. Who knows? Um, Jonathan Hickman, presumably. Presumably. So, apparently, the technology of the mansion has been a little weird since since Magneto's EMP back during Fatal Attractions. That's what Beast is checking out. Could that perhaps be a Chekhov's EMP that could have consequences later in the issue? I mean, yes. Yes, it will. No, if it were Chekhov's EMP, it would go off later in the issue. It's a Chekhov's repercussions of EMP. That really doesn't flow off the tongue, does it? As we alluded to briefly before, Jubilee then tries to recruit Iceman to go with her, but he's on his way to upgrade security around the comatose Emma Frost in the basement. Remember, this is the issue right after Cyclops' bachelor party, which was the issue where the executioner went after Emma Frost. Now, this executioner being, uh, Carl, not Strife. Exactly. Carl the executioner. Can we just call him that? I feel like he's so much funnier if we just call him that. It's it's like referring to, to Frank Castle as Frank the Punisher. I like this plan. Or or Punisher Frank. Oh, man. Bishop, who theoretically could have been Jubilee's third attempt at a chaperone if this issue's plot had not gone in a different direction, is outside, covered in snow, sort of meditating. He's thinking about this time that he and his sister Shard, in the future that is his past, were on the run from an M-plate, and she suggested that he absorb each snowflake as it melted to power up and fight the M-plate that was going to kill them, which is a really cool creative use of Bishop's powers, I gotta say. The melting or the impact of the snowflakes hitting his skin? I don't remember what the issue says, but I feel like either could work. Yeah, I just remembered it as specifically being the impact, and now I'm wondering if I misremembered. Either way, though, yeah, you're right. Storm is heading out to the other plot, which I guess would be the P plot, based on how you described it earlier, Jay. And she just wants to see if he's okay, and I love their dynamic at this point. Like, he's his usual serious self, she's very amused at this, and they have such respect for each other. Like, Storm is very responsible, which Bishop is totally into, but she's also full of life in a way that I think he aspires to. And she's able to kind of get kind of get him out of his reverie. And I love when Bishop realizes the moments when he realizes that he can have fun that he has a team that he has those dynamics and this is one of them he he throws a snowball after her and and for his trouble of course gets an entire wall of snow in his face because it's storm and you don't start a snowball fight with storm 
But I love the way that she's drawn by Ramita because Storm has this very slight smile on her face as she dodges the snowball without even looking back. And then after, as Bishop is buried in snow, there's just a moment and then he just starts guffawing like the panel is just covered with ha 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 And it is wonderful. It really is. You know what's also wonderful, Jay? Yes, but what were you thinking of? Uh, well, I was thinking of Storm's outfit in this scene. It's this green corset, these tight black leather pants, three asymmetrical blue belts, a black cloak, a headband, black full gloves, a fancy black collar, deep purple eyeshadow. I really love it when artists remember that Storm is a goddamn fashionista. She's leaning into something, but I'm not sure what, but it's awesome. I feel like that's Aurora in a nutshell right there. She does her own thing. We can't quite define it, but we must admire it. Man, speaking of, of Storm and fashion, the Designing X-Women panel this year from FlameCon was Storm-themed. And, I'm you know, I'm just going to link to a gallery. I'm going to find somewhere where those are collected because, yeah, Storm and fashion forever. Hell yeah. Sabretooth in fashion, not so much. And maybe that's why he's so upset having a bad day in his basement prison. He's raging way worse than usual. Sabretooth is actually pretty fashionable when he's trying to dress up. Like, it's it's distinctly a, a sort of stylized comic strip mobster aesthetic, but he pulls it off pretty well. Well, right now he's basically wearing ripped up sweatpants and a t-shirt, so that's less exciting, as much as I've certainly adopted that look myself upon occasion. But I love how Ramita draws him here. He's sweating and frothing, and he's just this enormous hulking figure. And all of Ramita's excessive shading and lines and his blocky shapes just make Sabretooth look dangerous. Like, I think there's this idea that we get largely from video games that big people are really slow and clumsy. But he looks like the kind of person where if you're in the same room as him, you're just going to be crushed under muscle and death immediately. Yeah, something, you know, Ramita's... The weirdness of Ramita and his style is rough in, in like, quiet human moments and scenes. It's fantastic for anything that's supposed to look weird or off or monstrous. Right. So, as Bishop laughs, and Jubilee mopes, and Beast investigates, and Sabretooth rages, the power blows through the entire mansion. This is a problem, because the power was the only thing keeping up whatever hand-wavy, unstable, molecular, laser-grid system was keeping Sabretooth contained. Whoops. Similarly, that electricity was responsible for what was keeping Emma Frost alive, and there is a big damn zappy power surge where she and Iceman are. And Iceman, to his altruistic credit, tries to jump in front of her body and shield her from this. And as the narration tells us in a slightly over-the-top exaggerated fashion... It is a decision he will come to regret for the rest of his life. Or at least for a few issues. We'll get to that. I want to go back a little bit to Iceman's conversation with Comatose Emma Frost, because he, he does some, some monologuing to her. And I think this is around the point that writers were starting to look at, at the idea of writing Iceman as gay. Yeah, he talks a lot about his failed relationships and seems to see it as some kind of a of a personal failing, like something wrong with his character or wrong with his identity. And again, it's really interesting watching how the character evolves in relation to 
that intent and also that retroactive revelation. Um, and this is this is a place, and this is an issue, and this is this is a bit of plot and story where I feel like that is that's particularly relevant. Yeah. But for now, we mainly have Iceman very unconscious atop the even more unconscious Emma Frost. And Bishop realizes, oh shit, yeah, that thing you said, Jay, about Sabretooth being free? That. And Bishop is nothing if not security. He is nothing if not a cops. So he just dashes right into action. Bishop is great, and it's a good thing that Bishop jumps into action, because the first thing Sabretooth does, somewhat predictably, is catch Jubilee, and he's about to kill her. And God, just the way this is laid out, it's genuinely scary. It's hard in a comic book, or really in any story, where you know the characters are basically going to be okay, it's hard to make threats feel real. But here I buy it, and part of it's just the simple dialogue that Lobdell chooses as Jubilee, terrified, asks Sabretooth. Are you going to kill me? What do you think? I... I think you're going to kill me? And I do believe, even though obviously Jubilee's life isn't really in danger in a story like this, I do believe that he would, because Bishop jumps in right then, having run down through the halls, ripping wires out of the walls and absorbing all the electricity into himself, and then Kool-Aid manning his way right into this room. Bishop saves her in the nick of time, although she does also zap Sabretooth in the face, which is pretty cool. And yeah, it feels like if that hadn't happened, we would have one dead Jubilation Lee. Yeah, part of what the last few arcs have done, I think, is really reestablish Sabretooth as a credible threat in ways he hadn't been in a very, very long time. Like, he's really, really scary at this point. He is the monster in the closet. Yeah, and that story beat serves double duty in that seeing how scared Jubilee is of Sabretooth both here and in a previous issue of Adjectiveless X-Men where she interacted with him, that's, I think, starting to make her realize that she's not so sure about being a full-on X-Man if she's going to have to deal with stuff like this. I mean, the first X-Man thing that she interacted with directly involved someone getting crucified, so not sure what she was expecting. (laughs) There is that. Dead dove, do not eat. So... Bishop, now that Sabretooth's been scared off by the assorted energy blasts, tells Jubilee, okay, we gotta catch this dude, we have to split up. And Jubilee is not okay with that. Jubilee panics and grabs him and bursts into tears. And, man, Jubilee's a kid, she's really young, and that just had never occurred to Bishop, who grew up in a world where childhood was largely a luxury that people didn't have access to, or at least that mutants didn't. But to Bishop's credit, he does his best to comfort her, and he tells her that, okay, it's fine, he'll go after Sabretooth, she can stay behind. So, Bishop and Sabretooth do, of course, manage to fight each other, and they have an enormous fight, and it's a very, very well-drawn fight. Something that Ramita's great at is conveying impact and weight. Like his 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 art has mass and has substance in ways that are very, very hard to accomplish in comics. Yeah, you can almost feel the Morlock tunnels, which is where they are since those are right under the X-Mansion. You can almost feel those tunnels just shake with like every blow as one of them picks the other up and slams them into the wall. It's really cool. Like, I love Joe Matarera's art, and I'm glad he's going to be the new ongoing artist pretty soon in this book, but man, John Romita Jr.'s latter-day art has really, really grown on me going through these issues more closely than I read them when I was a kid. 
So Bishop and Sabretooth are pretty evenly matched at this point. Bishop points out that he could have killed Sabretooth pretty easily in his, his day, and he has no moral problem with it, but he's in this time now, and he's working with the X-Men, and they have specific rules that he follows the same way that he followed his own laws when it came to dealing with prisoners in his time. And that puts him at a significant disadvantage. It's a lot harder to effectively subdue someone you don't want to kill or seriously injure than it is to kill someone. Thankfully, when things are looking a little dicey for Bishop, Jubilee shows up with a taser and zaps Sabretooth unconscious. Yay! That always struck me as too easy. Like, it's good that she does that, and it works as a moment, but I'm really surprised that that knocked him out that that completely ineffectively. Well, and I looked it up. It mentions it's a 25,000 volt taser, which sure sounds like a lot, but I have no frame of reference. So I googled tasers, and apparently 50,000 volts is standard, so this is a half-power taser, and Sabretooth is like a 12 times power dude. Yeah, I got nothing here. Maybe it's, it's, a, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a magical comics Shi'ar taser. I don't know. Maybe she hit his weak point for massive damage. I'm going to go with GR Taser. Eh, either way. So this kind of reminds me of a much, much darker version of Bish and Jubes, Adam Rex's awesome X-Men fan comic. Like, way darker. Yeah, Bish and Jubes is delightful, by the way, and we will we will link to that in the visual companion to this. Adam is, of course, also the co-host of Battle of the Atom. A great podcast you should totally check out if you haven't. So, Jay, what do you think about this whole Sabretooth is in the mansion and scary plot? Like, do you think they've gone to the well too many times at this point? Because X-Men number 28 was kind of the same story. He just didn't break out at the time. See, I think this works because I think I think X-Men 28 made the specter of him breaking out much more significant. I think this is, I, in a lot of ways, you know, you mentioned Chekhov's gun, and I think Sabretooth has been Chekhov's gun in the mansion for a while. No, that's, that's actually quite reasonable. So, like we mentioned earlier, there is an issue of What If based on this. It is What If Volume 2, Number 87, in which Sabretooth breaks out, kills all the X-Men, and then Jubilee uses the Danger Room to kill him. And, as is frequently the case in a What If story, everything is terrible. Cyclops would be proud, though. Good use of the Danger Room. Agreed. So that leads us into the tiny bit of the M plot from Uncanny X-Men Number 312, Romp. We've only got a moment of this. Now, Beast goes up looking for Iceman when he doesn't come back and finds him unconscious. He manages to get Bobby breathing again. But Bobby's still out, although he does say one word before lapsing back into complete unconsciousness. And that word is Pierce. Which, you know, given that he's right there with Emma, and Emma ended up comatose largely because Pierce uh, sicked the Sentinels, Trevor Fitzroy Sentinels, that were after him, on her, we perhaps are starting to put two and two together. Man, um, we're not really going to get to the climax of that plotline until the next episode where we come back to this book, which is a shame because it's so good. But for now, let's look into the M-plot in Uncanny X-Men number 313, Hands Across the Water. Now, Joe Matarera did the art in 312, but we barely touched on it, we'll get to that later. But he does this issue as well, and god, I love the way he draws Iceman, as Banshee and Beast and Jubilee are looking in on the comatose Bobby Drake. This particular Iceman moment is one of the iconic visuals of Iceman. And it's one that has gone on to inform his appearance as his powers evolved 
much, much further out from this, which I love. Yeah, we still see Iceman covered with huge spikes of ice and ice coating all nearby surfaces. Like, his powers are just on overdrive while he's unconscious. And John Romita Jr. drew him that way, too. He's basically been that way ever since Mikhail Rasputin supercharged Bobby's powers. But what I like about the way Joe Matarera draws this modern day, by which I mean 1994 Iceman, is that he's blocky and spiky in places, but overall Bobby's body is lithe and trim in a way that I think fits Bobby Drake better. It makes it really clear that all of the icy outcroppings and growths and spikes and stuff are things that Bobby's powers are putting onto him. That's not Bobby himself without his powers. That's just how powerful his mutant power is, that it just adds this stuff onto him perpetually when he's in his ice form. He looks alien here in ways that he hasn't before, I think, even when his powers were out of control. And that alienness, I mean, I feel, so So one of the things that's int- always interesting about Iceman is that of the original X-Men, he's the one most consistently able to pass as human. And the one who I think is is the most normal by by whatever standard you measure that. And Something that changed over time is that Bobby's base fundamental form became ice. Like he is, he is also in a lot of the ways the the one of that group whose mutation is most defining or can be. In some ways, yeah, and that's of course come and gone over the years uh, in terms of how much control he has over his powers, what his default base form is. But yeah, sometimes he's I think up there with Beast sometimes. And. The folks around him, his friends, are kind of mystified by what's going on because they haven't seen him like this before. Like the way the ice is protruding and you know extending and retracting and 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 changing around his body and and Banshee opines, "Tis almost as if the boy is learning about his body from scratch." Well, he's not, but someone is. And Beast, who's of course leading all the sciencey efforts here, as he tends to, is joking around about the old popsicle. But Jubilee bursts into tears. She's furious and upset. He's not a popsicle. He's a person, a person like Wolverine or Liana and the dumb old White Queen and everyone else who gets hurt or killed or mangled for no good reason. God, the cracks are really starting to show with Jubilee, and I I don't blame her. I mean, not everybody can be the cool-headed, almost emotionally invincible child that Kitty Pride is, and I'm glad Jubilee isn't just randomly thrown into that role. I mean, Kitty Pride's not really cool-headed and emotionally invincible either. Kitty was is is, you know, the kid who starts fist fights with people who say the wrong thing. But for Kitty, it's always anger rather than fear, or almost always, and I think that's a big difference between her and Jubilee. Yeah, no, that's a really good point, I think that's a really good distinction. But yeah, what Beast is doing right here, it reminds me a great deal of our last X-Factor episode, when Guido was talking about getting over Madrox's death the same way, and Wolfsbane got mad at him. Guido and Beast have that same tendency, which is to get past the pain that's inherent to a lot of their lives, albeit different kinds of pain, with a mask of humor. And Iceman is very much Beast's best friend at this point. God, yeah, ever since the Silver Age, ever since X-Men started, basically. I mean, they fought Matoxo the Lava Man together. They taught him the true meaning of Christmas. And that's canon. So, yeah, between... 
Banshee thinking that, okay, somebody's got to take care of the kids because Jubilee's cracking up and, like, you know, nobody's there to, to take care of her. Between Jubilee not being sure if she wants to be an X-Man anymore and the X-Men having just gotten the Massachusetts Academy from Emma Frost and Emma Frost, spoiler, starting to claw her way back from Comatown, like, this is actually a very impressively natural build to the launching of Generation X as a title. Like, it I really feel like- is. Yeah, like they really give it the build it needs, and so it doesn't feel like it came out of nowhere, which honestly, New Mutants kind of did feel like it came out of nowhere. Wait, in terms of slow build and like seeding it early and organically, is Generation X the new Inferno? No, not even close. No, Inferno's way, way more full of foreshadowing than Generation X is. Valid. Do like Generation X, though. Later on, everybody's called to the infirmary and a very spiky, kind of evil-looking Iceman who isn't really speaking like Bobby Drake normally does. Why so surprised, X-Men? Surely you didn't think you'd trap me here forever. Why, it's Emma Frost! It's a body swap! Chris Claremont would be so proud! This is the iconic Iceman image I was thinking of. I, I, I jumped the gun on that. Sorry about that, listeners. Yeah, he looks awesome here. He's like he's got these long fingers and his hair's really spiky. He looks like Jack Frost from hell. It's a very, very apt description, I think. And and yeah, everything that I said about him before, um, I meant that about this one. So yeah, sorry about that. Click over to the visual companion for disambiguation. The previous image is pretty iconic too, though. But that's the M plot, so let's go on to the P plot. But not like that. So, starting with a tiny bit from Uncanny number 300, we see where Storm takes her awesome outfit. It's out to a club in New York City to meet... Hey, it's Yukio! Hells yeah, it is. You may remember Yukio as the self-styled Ronin from Japan that used to hang out with Wolverine and that convinced Storm to start wearing leather, shave her hair into a mohawk, and be pretty gay. You may also recall Yukio as definitely having been Storm's girlfriend. Oh yeah. And she looks fucking great. She's wearing all this punk black leather. But apparently she's called Storm out to this club, not just to have a gay good time, but because Yukio's been followed by these creepy dudes who turn out to be members of the Phalanx. So they stand in, like, a very tight unit? That's the thing. We don't really know who the Phalanx are at this point. Like, we've seen those creepy flesh soldiers we mentioned in the previously on X-Men. We've seen Cameron Hodge come back and be all fleshy and weird. This time, the way John Romita Jr. draws them is totally different. They look like they're beings made of shadow, that they kind of merge into and out of one another, and there are just little yellow circuitry accents on them. This is not at all what the phalanx are going to end up looking like, but they look fucking cool here. Oh, they look super cool here. Yeah, the phalanx changes forms a lot before kind of settling where it's ultimately going to land. And it's it's still kind of getting its its sea legs as it were over the course of this arc although as we move on to uncanny number 312 we see a big big step in that direction and i also just love the way this issue opens because they were confronting the creepy phalanx at the end of 311 and 312 opens with them just diving out a window over the streets of new york yeah man storm and yukio diving out of a third story window holding hands is precisely the content that i signed up for Lobdell's narration describes them as more than friends, less than sisters. I mean, I suppose that's technically accurate. It's interesting because 
their relationship feels very different here. Like, Storm is so much less open, open to change, open to listening, emotionally vulnerable than she was when she and Yukio had their big adventure in Japan ages ago. And Yukio is so much less seductive, but only in the dialogue. The art tells a very different story. Oh, man. Yeah, there's... You know, I it's there in the dialogue, too. There's a specific bit where Yukio gets in, injured where... Again, and I, I'm, I'm going to go back to this point over and over again regarding what gets commonly phrased as subtext, where if this were a hetero couple, it would absolutely be read as romance. Yeah, that's that's true. But the art just makes it completely unambiguous. Like, Yukio's hand is on Aurora's face, Aurora's lips are parted in this sort of breathless way. Like, it's pretty sexy. Oh yeah, there's 100% a kiss lean in there. Yeah. So, Yukio's alive, everybody's fine. What do we learn about what she's been up to? So, these guys have been following Yukio for weeks. And specifically, we learn from them that they're expecting that she will lead them to mutants. She associates with mutants. Storm assumes that they're talking about her, and they're not. Because as it turns out, Yukio is actually part of Professor X's mutant underground. This is a plot line I really enjoy. Like, it's only referenced here and there, but the idea that Xavier has agents, human and otherwise, all over the world, just doing little tasks for him, it makes him feel like the good kind of mastermind. I dig that. Like, not the villain mastermind, yeah. but the, you know, concept of a mastermind. Oh, for real, it's very mutant global frequency. Oh, yeah, God, global frequency is such a good comic. Pretty good TV pilot, too. It's a shame they never picked it up for a series. As it goes. So the phalanx are quick to follow, and Jay, you mentioned it takes a while for their appearance to sort of solidify in terms of what their permanent appearance will be. Honestly, I think this is 90% of the way right here. Maybe it's that they're smaller here than they're going to be, but they spend a lot of this issue as a giant grabby hand, and it reminds me very much of, like, Clayface in his most cartoonish incarnations— but for me, that's terrifying because Joe Matarera draws them as this like almost flowing sea of techno-organic flesh with faces and arms and stuff almost randomly thrown in. Like the phalanx is supposed to be a terrifying, inhuman collective intelligence. And the way Joe Matarera draws them really, really emphasizes that. Like, especially when they get blown apart and reassemble, and you'll see a face just pop out of a severed hand that then juts out tiny supports to pick itself up. They're oh, they're creepy. So those bits are good. The hand, it's the hand stuff that really gets me. It's like, it's just a little bit too cute and quirky. I don't know. For me, you can take a cute and quirky thing and you can make it menacing. You can make it menacing to the degree that the cute and quirkiness actually adds to the menace. I ad I agree, but I don't think that this is quite there yet. Okay. Well, listeners, tell us what you think in the comments or on social media or whatever. Actually, I think I know what it is. It's, the, it's that it's taking that specific form when otherwise it is so protean. This feels like the phalanx equivalent of the things when, you know, Green Lantern just makes a giant fist out of his ring. Ah, I see what you're saying. So you're saying that if they had stayed more of a shapeless, amorphous amoeba that was purely functional in the forms it took rather than, you know, mimicking existing anatomy, it would be scarier. Exactly. Or when if, if when it did mimic existing anatomy, you know, were those moments when you saw faces come out or saw, like, a human-sized hand come out or something like that. I think that would be creepier. Okay, yeah, I, I can totally see that. 
But yeah, after the ribbony, fleshy bubblegum soldiers in 305 and Cameron Hodge and Candy sort of being fleshy robots almost out of the Alien franchise, like, this is a very different type of phalanx. Well, this is specifically a phalanx that's much more directly evocative of someone else who tended to take cute cartoony forms. That's right. They look a hell of a lot like Warlock. And so far, none of that has been mentioned. We'll get a little bit of that shortly, but certainly any readers familiar with New Mutants will be doing the, oh shit, wait a minute. Uh, this, the phalanx is definitely not Warlock, though, and you can tell, for instance, by facts that it does things like refer to women as females, which is a pretty good indicator that it's on the wrong side. Yeah, yeah, just just don't, don't do that, folks. It doesn't work out. Now, the phalanx is also very, very deadly. It's impossible to kill. They can stop it briefly, but it adapts almost immediately to their attacks. Um, and a, a random human decides that, that it's probably Mutant's fault, and he can handle this and tries to beat it to death with a baseball bat, um, and it just eats him. And I think that really adds to the stakes here. It really makes it clear that this isn't going to be something where the X-Men can just fix everything at the last minute. This is a conflict that the X-Men's best course of action, the best case scenario, is that they survive, that they escape to eventually find help and figure this out. Yeah, they are not fighting the phalanx to win. They are fighting the phalanx to get it away from populated areas and to keep it from killing them. Now, because they're having a big fight in the sky with lightning and stuff, Gambit, who's also come into town with Storm as as a, a sort of distant wingman, um, notices what's going on. Now, he is busy sitting on a motorcycle and hitting on a random woman in the car next to him. I really love Joe Mad's Gambit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Joe Mad Herrera has this very manga-influenced style, and that serves Gambit extremely well. He's got this big, cartoony grin, almost too big for his face, and his hair's all floopy and anime-looking, and it just makes him look even more roguish, but not, like, rogue-ish. Having Gambit look a little bit cartoonier also makes him feel more accessible. Like, it it takes an edge off in some ways that work very, very well. It doesn't really take away from his, his moral ambiguity, but, like, I find this Gambit visually charming in ways that I really didn't, for instance, Jim Lee's. Also, he's got giant pirate gloves, and I appreciate that. Yeah, for no particular reason. He just does. Maybe he borrowed them from Corsair. I kind of love his whole outfit here. Like, I know it's not good, but I love it. Legit. I mean, that's kind of Gambit in general right there. Valid. He's wearing brown here, though. He's, he's, he's toned down more than usual, and he's, he wears brown and red as a combo very nicely. Mm-hmm. So he goes into help, and that's where we find out that Gambit and Yukio have history. And also that, like literally everyone else who had met Gambit before the X-Men, Yukio does not trust or particularly like him. And she spends the rest of, of, of this story arc in every, every moment where they've got breathing room from the fight, giving him a series of brief shovel talks of, you know, if you don't treat Storm right, if you double-cross her, if you do not treat her like the princess she is, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So the good guys team up, and Gambit does manage to blow up this phalanx unit temporarily by feeding it his motorcycle, complete with a full gas tank, and then blowing that whole shebang up with a charged card. And everyone heads to the dock. Again, they're trying to get it away from a populated area, 
And um, also they're all trying to get horrible, horrible infections by diving into the Hudson River. Yeah, don't do that. And just when things are looking bleak, they get bleaker because that lady that Gambit was hitting on, yeah, she shows up. She's here to help, she says. She's part of the National Security Council. And she is here to help. It's just that she's here to help the phalanx because she is, as it turns out, part of it. Yeah, the phalanx can be a big, gloopy, yellow and black mass with random faces and hands, or they can make themselves look indistinguishable from human beings, part of why they're so scary. They can, in fact, do both of those things at the same time, which again is part of why they're so threatening. The phalanx is a hive mind. So let's dive into the final part of this story, Uncanny number 313, Hands Across the Water. And we open in medias fucked, because since the end of the last issue, the whole dock blew up, and everybody's in the water, and drowning, and it's not great. And this is where I love the way Joe Matarera draws the phalanx, because Gambit's being dragged down by this, like, phalanx kraken. Like, the phalanx is just shifting and growing, and there are these enormous tentacles with mouths built in, and the teeth extending not just into the mouths themselves, but also around outside on the outside of the jaws, and it's just terrifying it's like a sea monster see this is the functional warping that i I like in the phalanx that makes it actually seem threatening that makes it seem scary this is you know a hive mind consciousness that's drawing on all the things it thinks of as useful and threatening at once yeah and gambit escapes because it's outside's invincible inside its mouth you can throw a card there and it's vulnerable whatever that doesn't make any sense based on the way we've seen it move and and shift its shape, but whatever comic books. We'll just go with it, because that takes us to a very interesting conversation between Storm and an isolated bit of phalanx that has broken off that she's confronting. She notices that it's weaker on its own. The phalanx, conveniently for the reader and for Storm, explains. We share a collective intelligence, as well as the strength of our conviction to purge this earth of genetic anomalies. You talk as if you are anything more than a sophisticated computer program. As if the fear and loathing you espouse comes from a genuine, if unenlightened, concern for humanity. Make Make no mistake, mutant. We We are are human. Human, and and something something much, much more. We were, each and every one of us, common people who willfully sacrificed our claim to humanity in order to ensure the purity of our our gene pool. By the bright lady, that is madness. Yeah, it's pretty screwed up. So, yeah, what we have here is people, human beings, non-mutants in this case, crossing moral lines, eroding their very humanity to protect their kind from outsiders. Eh, that's a, that rings a little true to the present day. I mean, in some ways, this is like the Reaver's leveled up significantly. Yeah, just the idea that you could hate so much that you'd be willing to just turn yourself inside out, turn yourself into a monster, just because destroying the target of your hate is that important to you. Well, and specifically destroying them because they're not human. This is a really ironic context for transhumanism. (laughs) Right. Thankfully, Gambit and Yukio show up, and the good guys win. They blow the phalanx up, and they scatter its atoms to the wind, which, I don't know if it'll kill the phalanx, but at least it'll buy them a little time. Now, Storm is concerned about the ethics of an all-out species war, about the idea of meeting of an enemy who they can't stop without killing it. 
Which is interesting because Storm's attitude toward killing has really gone back and forth, but that's been about killing individuals in the past. I can absolutely see any incarnation of Storm just hating the concept of essentially committing genocide even if it's for self-defense. Well, and that's the thing about the phalanx because of how it works. To it, it, it is a singular entity in a lot of ways. To kill the phalanx in any significant way is to kill all of it. Yeah. So Yukio doesn't really care because she's Yukio, and she's heading off to Wolverine number 82, which incidentally was the first issue that Russ, my comic book guy at the comic store in Bradenton that I used to get comics from when I was a kid, that was the first one he ever missed. And so I actually had to go to a different state to track down a copy of it. Shout out to that massive asshole. He was not a nice person, as I recall. It's true. He No, he wasn't. Uh, and the issue when I finally did find it? I don't know. It was okay. It had a cool cover. I didn't really know what was going on because uh, I didn't follow Wolverine very closely, but, you know. I do appreciate the implication that, like, at, let's see, you know, 12 or so, you hitchhiked to Georgia to get this comic. I mean, I was a collector, you know? So, elsewhere, related to this plot but outside of it, a phalanxified Stephen Lang floats in a sea of phalanx swirls and tendrils and blobs. Because the phalanx may be a hive mind, but it's got some dominant individual personalities within it. And Stephen Lang is one of them. Y'all remember Stephen Lang? Yeah, he was the one that kidnapped the X-Men into space in X-Men number 98, leading to the Phoenix Saga. He was the one that made those X-Men Sentinel clones that were on the cover of that famous issue where the X-Men were old team was fighting the X-Men new team. Literally everything is this dude's fault. Right? Now, he did die... But after that, his mind became part of Master Mold, the giant sentinel that poops out other sentinels. And as such, he was also in Conscience. You know that skinny little robot who was a jerk in that one Marvel Comics Presents story about the retribution virus? Yeah, that guy. It's all coming together. This is weird. This is a lot of, like, strange tangential stuff suddenly becoming massively relevant. And I'm not sure how this plays if if it's, you know, 1993 and, and you're a kid just reading this. I didn't know who the guy was at this point, but if I'd paid attention to Uncanny X-Men number 291, I would have noticed a little scene so minor that we didn't cover it when we talked about that issue, where the Friends of Humanity, the anti-mutant human organization, checked out a guy who was in a coma from a mental hospital. Apparently, that was the body of Stephen Lang, which is what the phalanx used to sort of integrate what was left of him into itself. I mean, it wasn't identified as such in 291, was it? Uh, no. So it maybe it turns out that whoever wrote that, Lobdell or whoever, intended it to be someone else. But here, a footnote tells us, yeah, that was totally that guy. Sure, Bob. So, Stephen Lang Phalanx guy asks somebody for an update on the new assimilations the Phalanx is doing. He asks somebody named Mr. Ramsey. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It is Doug Ramsey. It is Cypher, swoopy Alan Davis hair and all. But he's made of phalanx stuff, and he's just sort of embedded half in one of those big phalanx flesh blobs in this weird phalanxy ocean. Now, this is not actually Doug. Or rather, this will turn out to not actually be Doug. This is, to some extent, Warlock's impression of Doug. He doesn't know that. And Lang clearly doesn't know that. And we're not going to find that out for a pretty long time. 
Lang describes Mr. Ramsey as just being some dead cells that the Phalanx stole from Doug Ramsey's grave, where they also sprinkled Warlock's ashes after the Extinction Agenda, that they used to sort of create a computer program that simulated Doug Ramsey because his linguistic skills are very useful to the Phalanx. That makes sense. Um, I understood that as ambiguous enough to justify the later Douglock retcon, where it turns out it's just Warlock. Because again, Warlock's ashes were scattered there. They needed the Warlock stuff to create the Phalanx. Like, that's that's what the Phalanx is built out of. Yeah, we haven't found that out yet at this point, but that'll turn out to be mostly the case. It's pretty visibly obvious. Yeah, there's definitely the connection. Now, you may remember in our last Excalibur episode, we talked about Douglock showing up to talk to Zero. Yeah, that takes place after this. This is before Zero uses whatever robot personal ad he used to free Doug Ramsey from the Phalanx. Or whoever Douglock turns out to be. You know who else is here? <gasps> is it someone with color-coded binders? Is it somebody with little round glasses that he wears no matter how possessed, robotic, or demonic he becomes? Fuck yeah, it is. Cameron fucking Hodge. The unkillable. Like, who thought that he would end up here when he showed up at the beginning of X-Factor? Oh my god, he's come so far. He's come so far. He was terrible then, but now he's like, really terrible. Yeah, yeah, no, he he is the worst. So, yeah, he survived that thing with Candy Southern that we talked about earlier. He's part of the Phalanx, too. So we're seeing more and more important individuals in the Phalanx, and that's going to continue. So Lang was just sort of an, okay, well, yeah, it's Lang. Every time Hodge comes back, man, it is like a sledgehammer. It's You can hear the ominous chords, and it's great. Yup. You know who else is great, but thankfully in a very different way? Our listeners, and they've got questions. Blanton asks via email, how does Cyclops cry? Frequently. <laughs> Sorry, um, like, let, literally every other aspect of Cyclops' characterization that intersects with his powers, it varies. Um, so we've definitely seen him cry, like, actual normal tears with a visor on, which is weird, because I would have expected it to, see, to seal against his, his, his skin, and... Based on his powers, it would make sense for him to have normally functioning tear ducts, but the question would be how the tears would then interact with his actual eyes and with, with the blasts from his eyes, which leads to the larger question of whether Cyclops' optic blasts affect like his body's byproducts in general. And I don't think I really want to go there. Yeah, yeah, this, this leads down the path to like when J.K. Rowling tweeted that wizards used to shit on the ground all the time. No, no, they shat into the air and then... then made it disappear did they did they actually like make it cease to exist or did they just teleport it somewhere else i don't know but either way jk just stop helping stop i feel retroactively vindicated for never having gotten really into harry potter i mean i like it a fair bit but uh not that part i'm just gonna go ahead and say that's not canon Given that Cyclops' eyes are portals to a dimension of pure force, according to that one official handbook of the Marvel Universe issue that we assure you is canonical and will never be retconned away, mm. does that mean that due to eyeball backwash, his eyes actually are portals to a dimension of mostly pure force, but also a tiny little bit of Cyclops' tears? No, because the forces are always aimed outward, so it would, it would basically functionally be a seal. Oh, okay, so he's just sort of 
blasting tears outward whenever he cries. Or vaporizing them, depending on, again, how they interact with his powers. Huh. I don't know, man. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make sense that he can see either, so... Comics. Seth, also via email, um, wrote to ask why Cassandra Nova is frequently pictured wearing the, her safari clothes from New X-Men number one. I mean, it's kind of her signature outfit. Like, characters are often identified by their hair, right? Especially since different artists draw faces and builds on characters differently. She doesn't have any hair, so you have to have some clothing that's consistent. And she's not really a supervillain in the sense that other supervillains are, so spandex doesn't really make sense. And this is a visually distinct look. Um, it's easily recognizable, especially against a backdrop of, of superhero aesthetics. Um, it's also pretty specifically colonial villain coded. And that works because that just shows such a callous, arrogant elitism that really fits her character. Like, she doesn't consider any other entities other than herself to matter. She doesn't really consider them to be people in any any way that would affect her actions. I also have a soft spot for her wearing this outfit because the time that you and I appeared in an X-Men comic, Jay, we were hench people of Cassandra Nova and she was wearing that outfit. So, you know, there's that. So you, you have fond associations with the supervillain in the pith helmet. I, surprisingly, that's the way it's turned out. Follow your heart, weirdo. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's start off hearing from the angry Claremontian narrator. Ah, Sarah Century. You thought you could muster your allies that together you might stand against what alone was unvanquishable. And instead, look what you did. You've summoned Harvey Rollins to his certain doom. And that doom um, will take the form, I suppose, of, of the next recipient of the microphone, that being, of course, the one and only Cameron Hodge. It is a thing of beauty, isn't it? Once so messily varied and diverse, we are now united, organized, and alphabetized by a single unifying principle. Our humanity. Well, and a techno-organic hive mind, of course. Nonetheless, it would be a loss to entirely forget our colorful anti-mutant previous lives, would it not? Deanna Gilbert, based on the confident expression still visible on the circuitry of your face, I can only assume you once manipulated your mutant college roommate into starting a team of fake mutant hunters that served largely to further inflame anti-mutant sentiment. Cleverly done, my friend. It is an honor to share a hive mind with you. And David Panseri, the twinkle in your techno-organic eye tells a single tale. You escaped the confines of mortality by bargaining with a winged demonic monstrosity thus turning you into an invincible melding of hell flesh and alien technology, did you not? Well, better a deal with the devil than a meeting with a mutant, I've always said. Welcome aboard. Now if you'll excuse me, I have a number of color-coded binders to integrate into the phalanx's collective intelligence. It's like I always say, do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and Forest Hills, New York, and produced by Matt Hunter.
New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. You can also check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and other features. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Richter discovers that you can go home again. But that doesn't mean it won't suck. 